Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 45. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to advocate that we have minds, that our minds are free and purposeful to plan activities that will benefit oneself, one's family, one's community, and the evolution of humanity itself. Please like and follow the podcast Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. And as well, please follow me on Twitter also at Cunning of Geist. And should mention, if you're not already a member of the Hegel Study Group on Facebook, you may want to consider joining. We just passed the 26,000 member mark, so that's quite an accomplishment for the group. Anyway, in this episode, I'll be exploring the so-called hard problem of consciousness and showing that when one takes a closer look, perhaps it is not such a hard problem at all. In fact, it's probably not even a problem at all if you look at it correctly. The real problem is naturalistic materialism with its purposeless view of humanity, and we'll be getting into this in detail. We'll also be discussing the work of contemporary philosophers David Chalmers, Thomas Nagel, and John Searle, and of course, Hegel. Now, let me sort of summarize where I'm going here. I believe there's a core problem that this topic addresses, and it's a very deep one. It's perhaps the deepest scientific problem of them all. And the question is this. Are we just sophisticated machines with no inherent mind or purpose? Are we more than that, thinking creatures that have experiences, consciousness, etc.? Yes, I know, much of consciousness can be explained mechanically. We know how our eyes have evolved to allow us to see. We understand wavelengths, etc., the retina. But what is going on when we actually perceive a color, red, for example? What is the mechanism that gives way to this impression? And it seems that many in the scientific and philosophical community want to neglect this consciousness of color. It's pretty fundamental, but yet it's neglected. You know, we soon may have self-driving cars that can drive down the road. They can censor the cars, traffic lights, and get you where you need to go. But do these self-driving cars, will they see the way we do? No, I don't, I don't believe so. Are we just like these self-driving cars, but more complicated? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe that we are holy machines. And the actual problem with the hard problem of consciousness is that there really is no problem at all, as I said. The emperor has no clothes. As we know, there's not a problem with the emperor's new clothes because he does not have any clothes on. Now, here's what I mean. We all have experiences, conscious experiences. I can see colors, hear music. But the, the mechanical explanation of these experiences only go so far. Eventually, there's a line that has to be crossed. It's very much like the line between left brain understanding, verstand, and right brain reasoning, vernunft, which we've covered in so many previous episodes. The left brain common understanding is always breaking things down into smaller components and categorizing things. It's not building things up into a greater gestalt impression. And in many ways, this is exactly what Hegel's philosophy is about, the primacy of reason over common understanding. We are alive. We have conscious experiences. We can reflect on these. We can think. And those scientists and philosophers that refuse to accept us are pretending the elephant in the room is not there. And take my word, consciousness is even bigger than an elephant in the room. It's central. So that's, that's an overview. Now let's get on to specifics. 
The hard problem of consciousness was a phrase coined by cognitive scientist and philosopher David Chalmers in his 1995 paper entitled Facing Up to the Problem of Consciousness. Um, and the problem is this. It is reconciling our conscious experiences with brain and bodily processes. It's the old mind-body problem. Now, I contend that it is a hard problem for the naturalistic materialist only, who stumbles to figure out ways to explain consciousness through chemistry and physics alone. The chemistry part is the easy problem of consciousness. Well, not easy, but it's what occurs from a physical standpoint. And much of it can be explained in terms of physics and chemistry, how the eye works, how the ear works, etc. However, when the issue comes to how we experience the seeing or hearing, then it's a, it's a different story. Nowadays, philosophers and scientists often refer to these experiences as qualia, qualities. The experience of the color red, the sound of a violin, the taste of wine, etc., etc. These are termed qualia. It's interesting, it was one Charles Pierce, who we talked about in episode 43, that first used the term qual, referring to this. And it was actually philosopher C.I. Lewis that first used the term qualia in 1929 in its current meaning. Let me quote him, quote, There are recognizable qualitative characters of the given, which may be repeated in different experiences and are thus a sort of universals. I call these qualia. But although qu such qualia are universals in the sense of being recognized from one to another experience, they must be distinguished from the properties of the object. Confusion of these two is characteristic of many historical conceptions, as well as of current essence theories. The qual is directly intuited, given, and it is not the subject of any possible error because it is purely subjective. End quote. Now, there are still many philosophers and scientists alike, probably the big majority, that hold on to the materialistic view, and they dismiss the notion of qualia as somehow being separated from the biological processes of the brain and body. Daniel Dennett, one of the four horsemen of atheism, is perhaps the most well-known advocate for this materialistic position. He wrote a book in 1991 entitled Consciousness Explained, which presents his argument showing how what we call consciousness is derived from mechanical processes. Now, I've read summaries of his theories, and I find them unconvincing. Some have even said that the book should be called Consciousness Unexplained, and I agree. Uh, these critics believe Dennett never quite gets to the final explanation of how we do, in fact, perceive qualities of things or quality. Philosopher John Searle sums this up, this objection up nicely. Let me quote him. Quote, to put it as clearly as I can, in his book, Consciousness Explained, Dennett denies the existence of consciousness. He continues to use the word, but he means something different by it. For him, it refers only to third-person phenomena, not to the first-person conscious feelings and experiences we all have. For Dennett, there is no difference between us humans and complex zombies who lack any inner feelings, because we are all just complex zombies. I regard his view as self-refuting because it denies the existence of the data which a theory of consciousness is supposed to explain. Here is the paradox of this exchange. 
I am a conscious reviewer consciously answering the objections of an author who gives every indication of being consciously and puzzlingly angry. I do this for a readership that I assume is conscious. How can I take seriously his claim that consciousness does not really exist? End quote. Now, back to David Chalmers, who I said actually coined the phrase the hard problem of consciousness. Chalmers is an Australian philosopher who's currently at New York University. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He received his PhD at Indiana University in the United States under Douglas Hofstadler, who you may know as the author of Godel Eschel Bach, a very popular book. His doctoral thesis was entitled Towards a Theory of Consciousness. As an aside, he looks more like a middle-aged rock star than a tweed jacket-wearing professor, but we won't hold that for him or, or against him. In addition to coining the phrase the hard problem of consciousness, he is also well known for popularizing the philosophical zombie term, or P-zombie for short. Although the phrase had been used before, it was Chalmers who popularized it. And just what is a philosophical zombie, and how does it relate to the question at hand? Well, a philosophical zombie is just like a regular person, except they do not experience any qualia. And there are many forms of this argument, but essentially it goes like this. If it is physically possible to construct a zombie like a robot that would be indistinguishable from a human, uh, they, they would be like the Terminator robot in the movie The Terminator. It's a perfect example. When Arnold Schwarzenegger walks into the bar, he was the Terminator in that movie, he's undistinguishable from other patrons, other than the fact that he looks meaner and is much stronger. Now, if one can imagine such a thing, which this popular movie certainly does, does not that show that life consciousness experience is something on top of that? That's basically the P-zombie argument. Now, there, there are some other good thought experiments along this line. We'll, we'll cover a couple of them. There, there's a good one called Mary's Room, which was first presented by Frank Jackson. Um, it goes something like this. Mary is a brilliant neuroscientist that's the world leading expert on the perception of color in vision. And here's the catch. She lives in a black and white room and has never left it. She has a black and white television and has studied black and white textbooks to earn her PhD in color vision and become the leading world expert. Mary knows every fact about the retina, how it works, how light waves produce different sensations of color, etc., and one day, Mary leaves her room and walks down the street and sees an apple, a red apple. She is, quote, seeing, and quote, red for the first time. Has Mary learned something new? Well, I believe she certainly has. She now has an experience of color that she did not have before. So this is something more than just pure physicalism. The experience of color is more than the physical processes which produced it. Now, I wonder if you've any of you have seen some of those YouTube videos of children that get cochlear implants and hear for the first time. You see that, and you know, tell me that's not real. The quality is not real. There's even one I saw of a, of a child who could only see black and white, and special glasses were, were created that he put on, and then they could see color. And the look on his face and his parents was just incredible. It would bring a tear to your eye if, if, if you were to see that. This is what I'm talking about. There's another thought experiment called the Chinese Room, which is invented by philosopher John Searle, who we quoted earlier. And the story goes like this. 
Say you build a computer that specializes in the Chinese language. It is programmed to take Chinese words as input and then produce appropriate responses back in Chinese. The computer is put in a closed room. Now, a Chinese speaker is placed outside the room with a computer terminal. That person types in some Chinese sentences, and the computer is programmed to provide a response as if it were a human. And in this thought experiment, the computer is programmed so well that the Chinese speaker cannot tell if it was a real person in the room or a computer. And, you know, if they can program a computer to beat the world champion grandmaster in chess, they could probably do this. But anyway, now the next part of the story is what happens when you substitute a real person inside that room. And the, the person has all the formulas as to what Chinese characters to type back. It doesn't understand the Chinese characters, but he knows when you see X, you type back Y, etc. Now, it's got a rule book uh, as to what to feed back. Here's the key. The person can learn all the formulas without ever actually learning the Chinese language. If they were smart enough, they could duplicate exactly what the computer was doing without knowing any Chinese. So, this shows that there's more to the experience of a language than just a computerized response mechanism. One knows the language. One can freely think in a language. One can hear the language. The computer cannot. And again, as we've said, there's more going on here than physical cause and effect. It's qualia experience. Now, before moving on to Hegel, we need to speak about philosopher Thomas Nagel, who has done real breakthrough work in this area. Nagel was born in Yugoslavia and emigrated to the United States as a baby in 1939. He attended undergrad at Cornell University, then studied at Oxford in philosophy. He came back and got his PhD in philosophy at Harvard. He's taught at UC Berkeley, Princeton, and lastly at New York University. And all those universities, um, I should say, Cornell, Oxford, Harvard, are, are real um, analytic places for, for philosophy. So he really went against his, his, his training in, in what you're about to hear. He's best known for a paper that he wrote entitled, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? He wrote that in 1974. Daniel Dennett has called it the most widely cited and influential thought experiment about consciousness, end quote. Essentially, Nagel argues that we can study a bat, learn how they see, learn how they fly, how they use their sonar, etc. But we can never know what it feels like to be a bat, what the bat actually experiences. A bat has its own conscious experience that we cannot experience. The live bat is more than a robot. The live bat is experiencing itself as a bat. I read an extensive quote by Nagel in episode 26 that really sums up nicely what's going on here. I'm, I'm going to read this quote again now, but I'm going to break it up and provide commentary between each short section. So let's begin. Quote, the scientific revolution of the 17th century depended on a crucial limiting step at the start. It depended on subtracting from the physical world as an object of study everything mental, consciousness, meaning, intention, or purpose. The physical sciences as they have developed since then describe the elements of which the material universe is composed and the laws governing their behavior, end quote. Okay, this is a very essential thing that he brings up, and this has been a theme in many episodes of The Cutting of Geist. Essentially, with the scientific revolution, the world became much more left brain, the understanding of the world, and it, it, it ignored the holistic reasoning. It took the life out of the universe and dissected it like it was a machine. 
Now, moving on, quote, We ourselves as physical organisms are part of that universe, composed of the same basic elements as everything else. Since our mental lives evidently depend on our existence as physical organisms, it seems natural to think that the physical sciences can, in principle, provide the basis for an explanation of the mental aspects of reality as well. End quote. Now, yes, we need to include life and mind as part of the universe. That is what the left brain thinking misses, and the right brain does not. Moving on. Quote, However, I believe this possibility is ruled out by the conditions that have defined the physical sciences from the beginning, end quote. And this is the key. The physical sciences are designed to exclude consciousness and life. That's the simple fact of the matter. That is why it's called the hard problem of consciousness. Life and consciousness are not there from the get-go, so it's hard to fit them back in after the fact. Moving on. Quote, the physical sciences can describe organisms like ourselves as part of the objective spatiotemporal order, but they cannot describe the subjective experiences of such organisms or how the world appears to the different particular points of view. There can be a purely physical description of the neurophysiological processes that give rise to an experience and also the physical behavior that is typically associated with it, but such a description, however complete, will leave out the subjective essence of the experience how it is from the point of view of its subject, without which it would not be a conscious experience at all. So the physical sciences necessarily leave an important aspect of nature unexplained, end quote. So in other words, we can describe the physicality of a bat. We can understand how its body functions, but we can never experience just what it is like to be a bat. And this is what science is not recognizing today. It's, it's unexplained. Moving on, quote, Further, since the mental arises through the development of animal organisms, the nature of these organisms cannot be understood through the physical sciences alone, end quote. So, we cannot understand the consciousness of organisms from physical sciences alone, since the physical sciences have excluded consciousness from spatiotemporal materialistic descriptions. Anyway, moving on. Quote, finally, since the long process of biological evolution is responsible for the existence of conscious organisms, and since a purely physical process cannot explain their existence, it follows that biological evolution must be more than just a physical process and the theory of evolution, if it is to explain the existence of conscious life, must become more than just a physical theory, end quote. Here, Nagel is raising the stakes of it and taking a hit at Darwinism as it is currently understood. The problem with Darwinism, as it now stands, is it's just a physical theory. It does not account for consciousness or the formation of life itself. It explains what it does explain very well, but is not yet the whole story. Moving on. Quote, this means that the scientific outlook, if it aspires to a more complete understanding of nature, must expand to include theories capable of explaining the appearance in the universe of mental phenomena and the subjective points of view in which they occur. Theories of a different type from what we have seen so far. End quote. That's the end of the entire quote. So, as they said in the movie Jaws, we are going to need a bigger boat. We need expanded theories of evolution to explain consciousness. Now, let's move on to, uh, to Hegel. Now, what I'm about to cover can get very complicated, and perhaps I'll do a whole other episode just on this part, but I'm going to tr try now to keep it as simple as possible. 
The hard problem of consciousness is not a problem at all for Hegel. Consciousness is fundamental to the universe. Substance is subject, as he famously said. We did an entire episode on Hegel's famous claim here in the Phenomenology of Spirit that substance is subject in episode 24. Now, here's the quote, the direct quote from uh, from Hegel on this in, in the Phenomenology. Quote, in my view, a view which the developed exposition of the system itself can alone justify, everything depends on grasping and expressing the ultimate truth, not as substance, but as subject as well, end quote. So Hegel's clear, everything depends on grasping this ultimate truth. And I'm not going to go into as much detail here as I did in episode 24, but I do believe that this notion that substance is subject does explain what's going on with qualia. And it has to do with negativity. And here's how it goes. Again, I'm going to keep this simple. First, there is a negation, a difference noted between the I, the subject, and its object, then this first negation is negated by a second negation, and the identity is then realized between the two. And I believe this is exactly what consciousness is. It's a double negation, and I believe this is the experience. When this happens, this is our experience of consciousness and provides us a qualitative experience, a, a, a qualia. Uh, it's a sublation of the difference which provides this experience. Hegel makes this clear, uh, I'll quote him again, quote, Hence consciousness is the contradiction between the independence of the two sides of their identity, in which they are sublated, end quote. This double negation also takes place with our own notion of, of, of ourselves, of self-consciousness. We've noted before that there's no consciousness of ourselves in, until we are confronted with another consciousness. Hegel gets into this in the phenomenology in detail. Let me quote Hegel here. The I is, therefore, being or has being as a moment within it. When I posit this being as another confronting me, and at the same time as identical with me, I am awareness and have the absolute certainty of my being. End quote. There's another quote. Quote, the dissimilarity which obtains in consciousness between the ego and the substance substituting its object is their inner distinction, the factor of negativity in general. We may regard it as a defect of both opposites, but it is their very soul, their moving spirit, end quote. This moving spirit is, in fact, Geist, mime. And it is within both subject and object, and it's what links them. It makes them inseparable. And this provides the experience of being. So, it is the movement of consciousness in itself that gives rise to experience through this process that Hegel describes. And as I said, I believe it's this very sublation that gives rise to the experience of quality, the experiences of life. This is what's going on. This is the answer to the hard problem of consciousness. This is why we are not zombies, but living conscious beings. So, in summary, hopefully I have given enough examples to show that consciousness, our experiences, do not arise from purely spatio-temporal material means. We've given several examples that show that this is not so, we reviewed thought experiments of the philosophical zombie, Mary's room, the Chinese room, and what a bad experience is. And these all go to show that there's more going on than pure physicality. We are different from the Terminator. The reason for this is that Enlightenment science is focused solely on the external world leaving us out of the picture. And we can never be put back in because we are not recognized there in the first place. So it becomes a mystery. Hegel understood this. And... and 
life and consciousness is there with him from the get-go. And that's why he understands that the conscious perceiver is built into the perceived substance as one unity. So that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, rate, and share this podcast and tell your like-minded friends about it. I really appreciate it. As always, I will be posting the references cited in this episode on the Cunning of Geist Facebook page. And also, I'm going to try a new thing with this episode. I'm going to attempt to publish a transcript of this episode as well on Buzzsprout. We'll see how the software works in transcribing what I'm saying here. Can't guarantee that it'll work, but I'll let you know in the Facebook page as well as in the in the next episode. So, this is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.